Part two of Chapter eight From Inkovi to Esun of Travels in West Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Travels in West Africa by Mary H. Kingsley. Part two of Chapter eight From Inkovi to Esun. I shook hands with and thanked the chief, and directed that all the loads should be placed inside the huts. I must admit my good friend was a villainous-looking savage, but he behaved most hospitably and kindly. From what I had heard of the fan, I deemed it advisable not to make any present to him at once, but to base my claim on him on the right of an amicable stranger to hospitality. When I had seen all the baggage stowed, I went outside and sat at the doorway on a rather rickety, mushroom-shaped stool, in the cool evening air, waiting for my tea, which I wanted bitterly. Pagan came up as usual for tobacco to buy chop with, and after giving it to him I and the two chiefs, with grey shirt acting as interpreter, had a long chat. Of course the first question was— why was I there? I told them I was on my way to the factory of H. and C. on the Rembwe. They said they had heard of Ugumu, i.e. Messrs. Hatton and Cookson, but they did not trade direct with them, passing their trade into towns nearer to the Rembwe, which were swindling bad towns, they said, and they got the idea, stuck in their heads, that I was a trader a sort of bagman for the firm, and Grey Shirt could not get this idea out, so off one of their majesties went and returned with twenty-five balls of rubber, which I bought to promote good feeling, subsequently dashing them to Wiki, who passed them in at Indorco when we got there. I also bought some elephant-hair necklaces from one of the chief's wives, by exchanging my red silk tie with her for them, and one or two other things. I saw fish-hooks would not be of much value, because Efoa was not near a big water of any sort, so I held fish-hooks, and traded handkerchiefs and knives. One old chief was exceedingly keen to do business, and I bought a meat-spoon, a plantain-spoon, and a gravy-spoon off him, and then he brought me a lot of rubbish I did not want, and I said so and announced I had finished trade for that night. However, the old gentleman was not to be put off, and after an unsuccessful attempt to sell me his cooking-pots, which were roughly made out of clay, he made energetic signs to me that if I would wait he had got something that he would dispose of, which a grey shirt said was good too much. Off he went across the street and disappeared into his hut, where he evidently had a thorough hunt for the precious article. One box after another was brought out to the light of a bush torch held by one of his wives, and there was a great confabulation between him and his family of the, I'm sure you had it last, you must have moved it, never touched the thing, sort. At last it was found, and he brought it across the street to me most carefully. It was a bundle of bark cloth tied round something most carefully with tie-tie. This being removed, 
disclosed a layer of rag, which was unwound from round a central article. "'Whatever can this be?' thinks I. "'Some rare and valuable object, doubtless. Let's hope connected with fetish worship,' and I anxiously watched its unpacking. In the end, however, it disclosed, to my disgust and rage, an old shilling-razor. The way the old chief held it out, and the amount of dollars he asked for it, was enough to make any one believe that I was in such urgent need of the thing, that I was at his mercy regarding price. I waved it off with a haughty scorn, and then, feeling smitten by the expression of agonized bewilderment on his face, I dashed him a belt that delighted him, and went inside and had tea to soothe my outraged feelings. The chiefs made furious raids on the mob of spectators who pressed round the door, and stood with their eyes glued to every crack in the bark of which the hut was made. The next-door neighbors on either side might have amassed a comfortable competence for their old age by letting out seats for the circus. Every hole in the side walls had a human eye in it, and I heard new holes being bored in all directions, so I deeply fear the chief, my host, must have found his palace sadly draughty. I felt perfectly safe and content, however, although Ngota suggested the charming idea that perhaps them fetafan don sawi. As soon as all my men had come in and established themselves in the inner room for the night, I curled up among the boxes with my head on the tobacco sack and dozed. After about half an hour I heard a row in the street and looking out, for I recognized His Grace's voice taking a solo part followed by choruses. I found him in legal difficulties about a murder case. An alibi was proved for the time being, that is to say, the prosecution could not bring up witnesses because of the elephant hunt, and I went in for another doze, and the town at last grew quiet. Waking up again, I noticed the smell in the hut was violent, from being shut up, I suppose, and it had an unmistakably organic origin. Knocking the ash end off the smoldering bush-light that lay burning on the floor, I investigated and tracked it to those bags, so I took down the biggest one, and carefully noted exactly how the tai-tai had been put round its mouth, for these things are important and often mean a lot. I then shook its contents out in my hat, for fear of losing anything of value. They were a human hand, three big toes, four eyes, two ears, and other portions of the human frame. The hand was fresh, the others only so-so, and shriveled. Replacing them, I tied the bag up and hung it up again. I subsequently learned that although the fans will eat their fellow-friendly tribesfolk, yet they like to keep a little something belonging to them as a memento. This touching trait in their character I learned from Wiki, and though it's to their credit under their circumstances, Still, it's an unpleasant practice when they hang the remains in the bedroom you occupy, particularly if the bereavement in your host's family has been recent. I did not venture to prowl round Efua, but slid the bark door aside and looked out to get a breath of fresh air. It was a perfect night, and no mosquitoes. The town, walled in on every side by the great cliff of high black forest, looked very wild as it showed in the starlight, its low, savage-built bark huts, in two hard rows, 
closed at either side by a guard-house. In both guard-houses there was a fire burning, and in their flickering glow showed the forms of sleeping men. Nothing was moving save the goats, which are always brought into the special house for them in the middle of the town, to keep them from the leopards, which roam from dusk to dawn. Dawn found us stirring, I getting my tea and the rest of the party their chop, and binding up anew the loads with Wiki's fresh supple bush-ropes. Kiva amused me much. During our march his costume was exceeding scant, but when we reached the towns he took from his bag garments, and attired himself so resplendently that I feared the charm of his appearance would lead me into one of those dreadful wife palavers which experience had taught me of old to dread, and in the morning time he always devoted some time to repacking. I gave a big dash to both chiefs, and they came out with us, most civilly, to the end of their first plantations, and then we took farewell of each other, with many expressions of hope on both sides that we should meet again, and many warnings from them about the dissolute and depraved character of the other towns we should pass through before we reached the Rembwe. Our second day's march was infinitely worse than the first, for it lay along a series of abruptly shaped hills, with deep ravines between them. Each ravine had its swamp, and each swamp its river. This bit of country must be absolutely impassable for any human being, black or white, except during the dry season. There were representatives of the three chief forms of the West African bog. The large, deep swamps were best to deal with, because they make a break in the forest, and the sun can come down on their surface, and bake a crust over which you can go, if you go quickly. From experience in Devonian bogs, I knew Pace was our best chance, and I fancy I earned one of my nicknames among the fans on these. The fans went across all right with a rapid striding glide, but the other men erred from excess of caution, and while hesitating as to where was the next safe place to plant their feet, the place that they were standing on went in with a glug. Moreover, they would keep together, which was more than the crust would stand. The portly pagan and the passenger gave us a fine job in one bog, by sinking in close together. Some of us slashed off boughs of trees and tore off handfuls of hard cania leaves, while others threw them round the sinking victims to form a sort of raft, and then with the aid of bush-rope, of course, they were hauled out. The worst sort of swamp, and the most frequent hereabouts, is the deep narrow one that has no crust on, because it is too much shaded by the forest. The slopes of the ravines, too, are usually covered with an undergrowth of shenja, beautiful beyond description, but right bad to go through. I soon learned to dread seeing the man in front going downhill, or to find myself doing so, for it meant that within the next half-hour we should be battling through a patch of senja. I believe there are few effects that can compare with the beauty of them, with the golden sunlight coming down through the upper forest's branches on to their exquisitely shaped, hard, dark green leaves, making them look as if they were sprinkled with golden sequins. Their long green stalks, which support the leaves and bear little bunches of crimson berries, take every graceful curve imaginable, and the whole affair is free from insects, 
and when you have said this, you have said all there is to say in favor of Shenja, for those long green stalks of theirs are as tough as twisted wire, and the graceful curves go to the making of a net, which rises round you shoulder-high, and the hard green leaves, when lying on the ground, are fearfully slippery. It is not nice going down through them, particularly when nature is so arranged that the edge of the bank you are descending is a rock wall ten or twelve feet high, with a swamp of unknown depth at its foot. This arrangement was very frequent, on the second and third day's marches, and into these swamps the Shenja seemed to want to send you head first and get you suffocated. It is still less pleasant, however, going up the other side of the ravine when you have got through your swamp. You have to fight your way upwards among rough rocks, through this hard, tough network of stems, and it took it out of all of us except the fans. These narrow shaded swamps gave us a world of trouble and took up a good deal of time. Sometimes the leader of the party would make three or four attempts before he found a ford, going on until the black, batter-like ooze came up round his neck and then turning back and trying in another place, while the rest of the party sat upon the bank until the ford was found, feeling it was unnecessary to throw away human life, and that the more men there were paddling about in that swamp, the more chance there was that a hole in the bottom of it would be found— and when a hole is found, the discoverer is liable to leave his bones in it. If I happened to be in front, the duty of finding the ford fell on me, for none of us, after leaving Efua, knew the swamps personally. I was too frightened of the fan, and too nervous, and uncertain of the stuff my other men were made of, to dare show the white feather at anything that turned up. The fan took my conduct as a matter of course, never having travelled with white men before, or learnt the way some of them require carrying over swamps and rivers and so on. I dare say I might have taken things easier, but I was like the immortal Schmelzel. During that omnibus journey he made on his way to Flats, in the thunderstorm, afraid to be afraid. I am very certain I should have fared very differently had I entered a region occupied by a powerful and ferocious tribe like the Fen, from some districts on the west coast, where the inhabitants are used to find the white man incapable of personal exertion, requiring to be carried in a hammock, or wheeled in a go-cart or a bath-chair about the streets of their coast-towns, depending for the defence of their settlement on a body of black soldiers. This is not so in Congo Francaise, and I had behind me the prestige of a set of white men to whom, for the native, to say, You shall not do such and such a thing, you shall not go to such and such a place, would mean that those things would be done. I soon found the name of Hatton and Cookson's agent-general for this district. Mr. Hudson was one to conjure with among the trading tribes, and the Ajumba, moreover, although their knowledge of white men had been small— yet those they had been accustomed to see were fine specimens. Mr. Fildes, Mr. Cockshut, M. Chacot, Dr. Pilager, Pierre Legioni, M. Cacon, Mr. Whittaker, and that vivacious French official were not men any man, black or white, would willingly ruffle, and, in addition, there was a memory among the black traders of that white man, Mac Taggart, 
whom an enterprising trading tribe near Fernan Vaz had had the hardihood to tackle, shooting him and then towing him behind a canoe and slashing him all over with their knives, the while yet he survived, and tackled them again in a way that must almost pathetically have astonished those simple savages, after the real good work they had put in to the killing of him. Of course it was hard to live up to these ideals, and I do not pretend to have succeeded, or rather that I should have succeeded had the real strain been put on me. But to return to that gorilla land forest, all the rivers we crossed on the first, second, and third day, I was told, went into one or other of the branches of the Ogowe, showing that the long slope of land between the Ogowe and the Rembwe is towards the Ogowe. The stone of which the mountains were composed was that same hard black rock that I had found on the Sierra del Cristal by the Ogowe rapids, only hereabouts there was not amongst it those great masses of white quartz which are so prominent a feature from Talaguga upwards in the Ogowe valley. Neither were the mountains anything like so high, but they had the same abruptness of shape. They look like very old parts of the same range, worn down to stumps by the disintegrating forces of the torrential rain and sun, and the dense forest growing on them. Frost, of course, they had not been subject to, but rocks, I noticed, were often being somewhat similarly split by rootlets, having got into some tiny crevice, and by gradual growth enlarged it to a crack. Of our troubles among the timber falls on these mountains I have already spoken, and these were at their worst between Efua and Egaja. I had suffered a good deal from thirst that day, unboiled water being my ibet, and we were all very nearly tired out with the athletic sports since leaving Efua. One thing only we knew about Egaja, for sure, and that was that not one of us had a friend there, and that it was a town of extra evil repute, so we were not feeling very cheerful, when towards evening time we struck its outermost plantations, their immediate vicinity being announced to us by silence, treading full and fair on to a sharp ebony spike driven into the narrow path, and hurting himself. Fortunately, after we passed this first plantation, we came upon a camp of rubber collectors, four young men. I got one of them to carry Silence's load and show us the way into the town, when on we went into more plantations. There is nothing more tiresome than finding your path going into a plantation, because it fades out in the cleared ground, or starts playing games with a lot of other little paths that are running about amongst the crops, and no West African path goes straight into a stream or a plantation, and straight out the other side, so you have a nice time picking it up again. We were spared a good deal of fine varied walking by our new friend the rubber collector, for I noticed he led us out by a path nearly at right angles to the one by which we had entered. He then pitched into a pit which was half full of thorns, and which he observed he did not know was there, demonstrating that an African guide can speak the truth. When he had got out, he handed back Silence's load, and got a dash of tobacco for his help. He left us to devote the rest of his evening by his forest fire to unthorning himself, while we proceeded to wade a swift, 
deepish river that crossed the path he told us led to Egaja, and then went across another bit of forest and downhill again. Oh, bless those swamps, thought I, here's another. But no, not this time. Across the bottom of the steep ravine, from one side to another, lay an enormous tree as a bridge, about fifteen feet above a river, which rushed beneath it, over a boulder-encumbered bed. I took in the situation at a glance, and then and there I would have changed that bridge for any swamp I have ever seen, yea, even for a certain bush-rope bridge in which I once wound myself up like a buzzing fly in a spider's web. I was fearfully tired, and my legs shivered under me after the falls and emotions of the previous part of the day, and my boots were slippery with water soaking. The fans went into the river, and half swam, half waded across. All the Ajumba, save Pagan, followed, and Ingota got across with their assistance. Pagan thought he would try the bridge, and I thought I would watch how the thing worked. He got about three yards along it, and then slipped, but caught the tree with his hands as he fell, and hauled himself back to my side again. Then he went down the bank and through the water. This was not calculated to improve one's nerve. I knew by now I had got to go by the bridge, for I saw I was not strong enough in my tired state to fight the water. If only the wretched thing had had its bark on, it would have been better, but it was bare, bald and round, and a slip meant death on the rocks below. I rushed it and reached the other side in safety, whereby poor Pagan got chafed about his failure by the others, who said they had gone through the water just to wash their feet. The other side, when we got there, did not seem much worth reaching, being a swampy fringe at the bottom of a steep hillside, and after a few yards the path turned into a stream or backwater of the river. It was hedged with thickly pleached bushes, and covered with liquid water on the top of semi-liquid mud. Now and again, for a change, you had a foot of water on top of fearfully slippery, harder mud, and then we light-heartedly took headers into the bush, sideways, or sat down, and when it was not proceeding, on the evil tenor of its way, like this, it had holes in it. In fact, I fancy the bottom of the holes were the true level, for it came near being as full of holes as a fishing-net, and it was very quaint to see the man in front, who had been paddling along knee-deep before, now plop down with the water round his shoulders, and getting out of these slippery pockets, which were sometimes a tight fit, was difficult. However, that is the path you have got to go by if you are not wise enough to stop at home, the little bay of shrub-overgrown swamp fringing the river on one side and on the other, running up to the mountain-side. At last we came to a sandy bank, and on that bank stood Igaja, the town with an evil name even among the Fan, but where we had got to stay, fair or foul. We went into it through its palaver house, and soon had the usual row. I had detected signs of trouble among my men during the whole day. The Ajumba were tired and dissatisfied with the fans. The fans were in high feather, openly insolent to Ingota, and anxious for me to stay in this delightful locality, and go hunting with them and divers other choice spirits, which they assured me we could easily get to join us at Ifoa. I kept peace as well as I could, 
explaining to the fans I had not enough money with me now, because I had not, when starting, expected such magnificent opportunities to be placed at my disposal, and promising to come back next year, a promise I hoped to keep, and then we would go and have a grand time of it. This state of a party was a dangerous one in which to enter a strange fan town, where our security lay in our being united. When the first burst of Igaja conversation began to boil down into something reasonable, I found that a villainous-looking scoundrel smeared with soot and draped in a fragment of genuine antique cloth was a head-chief in mourning. He placed a house at my disposal, quite a mansion, for it had no less than four apartments. The first one was almost entirely occupied by a bedstead frame that was being made up inside on account of the small size of the door. This had to be removed before we could get in with the baggage at all. While this removal was being effected with as much damage to the house and the article as if it were a quarter-day affair in England, the other chief arrived. He had been sent for, being away down the river fishing when we arrived. I saw at once he was a very superior man to any of the chiefs I had yet met with. It was not his attire, remarkable though that was for the district, for it consisted of a gentleman's black frock coat, such as is given in the ivory bundle, a bright blue felt sombrero hat, an ample cloth of boma check, but his face and general bearing were distinctive, and very powerful and intelligent, and I knew that Igaja, for good or bad, owed its name to this man, and not to the mere sensual, brutal-looking one. He was exceedingly courteous, ordering his people to bring me a stool and one for himself, and then a fly-whisk to battle with the evening cloud of sand-flies. I got Pagan to come and act as interpreter, while the rest were stowing the baggage, etc. After compliments— "'Tell the chief,' I said, "'that I hear this town of his is thief-town. "'Better not, sir,' says Pagan. "'Go on,' said I, "'or I'll tell him myself.' "'So Pagan did. "'It was a sad blow to the chief. "'Thief-town, this highly respectable town of Igaja, "'a town whose moral conduct in all matters, "'schedule, was an example to all towns, "'called a thief-town. "'Oh, what a wicked world!' I said it was, but I would reserve my opinion as to whether Igaja was a part of the wicked world or a star-like exception, until I had experienced it myself. We then discoursed on many matters, and I got a great deal of interesting fetish information out of the chief, which was valuable to me, because the whole of this district had not been in contact with white culture, and altogether I and the chief became great friends." Just when I was going in to have my much-desired tea, he brought me his mother, an old lady evidently very bright and able, but poor woman, with the most disgusting hand and arm I have ever seen. I am ashamed to say I came very near being sympathetically sick, in the African manner on the spot. I felt I could not attend to it and have my tea afterwards, so I directed one of the canoe-shaped little tubs used for beating up the manoakin to be brought and filled with hot water, and then putting into it a heavy dose of Condy's fluid, I made her sit down and lay the whole arm in it and went and had my tea. 
As soon as I had done, I went outside, and getting some of the many surrounding ladies to hold bush-lights, I examined the case. The whole hand was a mass of yellow pus, streaked with sanies. Large ulcers were burrowing into the forearm, while in the armpit was a big abscess. I opened the abscess at once, and then the old lady frightened me nearly out of my wits by gently subsiding. I thought dying, but I soon found out merely going to sleep. I then washed the abscess well out, and having got a lot of baked plantains, I made a big poultice of them mixed with boiling water and more condi in the tub, and laid her arm right in this, and propping her up all round and covering her over with cloths, I requisitioned from her son. I left her to have her nap while I went into the history of the case, which was that some of forty-eight hours ago she had been wading along the bank catching crawfish, and had been stung by a fish like a snake. So I presume the ulcers were an old standing palaver. The hand had been a good deal torn by the creature, and the pain and swelling had been so great she had not had a minute's sleep since. As soon as the poultice got chilled, I took her arm out and cleaned it again, and wound it round with dressing, and had her ladyship carried bodily, still asleep, into her hut, and after rousing her up, giving her a dose of that fine preparation, pale crotonis cum hydrargi, saw her tucked up on her own plank, bedstead for the night, sound asleep again. The chief was very anxious to have some pills, too, so I gave him some, with firm injunctions only to take one at the first time. I knew that that one would teach him not to take more than one for ever after, better than I could do if I talked from June to January. Then all the afflicted of Igaja turned up and wanted medical advice. There was evidently a good stiff epidemic of the yaws about, lots of cases of dumb with the various symptoms, ulcers of course galore a man with a bit of a broken spearhead in an abscess in the thigh, one which I believe a professional enthusiast would call a lovely case, of filaria, the entire white of one eye being full of the active little worms, and a ridge of surplus population migrating across the bridge of the nose into the other eye, under the skin looking like the bridge of a pair of spectacles. It was past eleven before I had anything like done— and my men had long been sound asleep, but the chief had conscientiously sat up and seen the thing through. He then went and fetched some rolls of bark cloth to put on my plank, and I gave him a handsome cloth I happened to have with me, a couple of knives and some heads of tobacco, and wished him good night, blockading my bark door and picking my way over my sleeping ajumba into an inner apartment which I also blockaded, hoping I had done with Igaja for some hours. No such thing. At one forty-five the whole town was roused by the frantic yells of a woman. I judged there was one of my beauties of fans mixed up in it, and there was, and after paying damages got back again by 2.30 a.m., and off to sleep again instantly. At four sharp, whole town of Igaja plunged into emotion, and worse, shindy. I suggested to the Ajumba they should go out, but no, they didn't carry a row of pins if one of our fans did get killed. So I went, recognizing Kiva's voice in high expostulation. Kiva, it seems, a long time ago, had a transaction in Ray, a tooth of ivory with a man who unfortunately happened to be in this town to-night, and Kiva owed the said man a coat. 
Kiva, it seems, has been spending the whole evening demonstrating to his creditor that, had he only known they were to meet, he would have brought the coat with him, a particularly beautiful coat, and the reason he has not paid it before is that he has mislaid the creditor's address. The creditor says he has called repeatedly at Kiva's village, that notorious Mfeta, and Kiva has never been at home, and moreover that Kiva's wife, one of them, stole a yellow dog of great value from his, the creditor's, canoe. Kiva says women will be women, and he had gone off to sleep thinking the affair had blown over, and the bill renewed for the time being. The creditor had not gone to sleep, but sat up thinking the affair over and remembered many cases, all cited in full of how Kiva had failed to meet his debts, also Kiva's brother on the mother's side and uncle, Ditto, and so has decided to foreclose forthwith on the debtor's estate, and as the estate is represented by and consists of Kiva's person, to take and seize upon it and eat it. It is always highly interesting to observe the germ of any of our own institutions existing in the culture of a lower race. Nevertheless, it is trying to be hauled out of one's sleep in the middle of the night and plunged into this study. Evidently, this was a trace of an early form of the bankruptcy court, the court which clears a man of his debt being here represented by the knife and the cooking-pot, the whitewashing, as I believe it is termed with us, also shows only it is not the debtor who is whitewashed, but the creditors doing themselves over with white clay to celebrate the removal of their enemy from his sphere of meretricious activity. This inversion may arise from the fact that whitewashing a creditor who was about to be cooked would be unwise, as the stuff would boil off the bits and spoil the gravy. There is always some fragment of sound sense underlying African institutions. Kiva was, when I got out, tied up, talking nineteen to the dozen, and so was everyone else, and a lady was working up white clay in a pot. I dare say I ought to have rushed at him and cut his bonds and killed people in a general way with a revolver, and then flown with my band to the bush. Only my band evidently had no flying in them, being tucked up in the hut pretending to be asleep, and uninterested in the affair, and although I could have abandoned the band without a pang just then, I could not so light-heartedly fly alone with Kiva to the bush and leave my fishes. So I shouted, Azuna! to the bankruptcy court, and got a fan who spoke trade English to come and interpret for me, and from him I learned the above-stated outline for the proceedings up to the time. Regarding the original iniquity of Kiva, my other fans held the opinion that the old Scotch lady had, regarding certain passages in the history of the early Jews, that it was a long time ago, and Ablin's it was no true. Fortunately for the reader, it is impossible for me to give in full detail the proceeding of the court. I do not think if the whole of Mr. Pittman's school of shorthand had been there to take them down, the thing could possibly have been done in word-writing. If the late Richard Wagner, however, had been present, he could have scored the performance for a full orchestra, and with all its weird grunts and roars and pistol-like finger-clicks, and its elongated words and thigh-slaps, it would have been a masterpiece. I got my friend the chief on my side, but he explained he had no jurisdiction, as neither of the men belonged to his town, 
and I explained to him that, as the proceedings were taking place in his town, he had a right of jurisdiction ipso facto. The fan could not translate this phrase, so we gave it the chief raw, and he seemed to relish it, and he and I then cut into the affair together. I looking at him with admiration and approval when he was saying his say, and after his azuna had produced a patch of silence he could move his tongue in, and he similarly regarding me during my speech for the defence. We neither, I expect, understood each other, and we had trouble with our client, who would keep pleading not guilty, which was absurd. Anyhow, it produced our effect, my success arising from my concluding my speech with the announcement that I would give the creditor a book on Hatton and Cookson for the coat, and I would deduct it from Kiva's pay. But, said the court, we look your mouth, and it be sweet mouth, but with Hatton and Cookson we can have no trade. This was a blow to me. Hatton and Cookson was my big juju, and it was to their sub-factory on the Rembwe that I was bound. On inquiry I elicited another cheerful little fact, which was they could not deal with Hatton and Cookson, because there was blood war on the path that way. The court said they would take a book on Holty, but with Holty, i.e. Mr. John Holt, I had no deposit of money, and I did not feel justified in issuing checks on him, knowing also he could not feel amiable towards wandering scientists after what he had recently gone through with one. Not that I doubt for one minute, but that his representatives would have honoured my book, for the generosity and helpfulness of West African traders is unbounded and long-suffering but I did not like to encroach on it, all the more so from a feeling that I might never get through to refund the money. So at last I paid the equivalent value of the coat out of my own trade stuff, and the affair was regarded by all parties as satisfactorily closed by the time the grey dawn was coming up over the forest wall. I went in again and slept in snatches, until I got my tea about seven, and then turned out to hurry my band out of Igaja. This I did not succeed in doing until past ten. One row succeeded another with my men, but I was determined to get them out of that town as quickly as possible, for I had heard so much from perfectly reliable and experienced people regarding the treacherousness of the fan. I feared, too, that more cases still would be brought up against Kiva, from the resume of his criminal career I had had last night, and I knew it was very doubtful whether my other three fans were any better than he. There was His Grace's little murder affair only languishing for want of evidence owing to the witnesses for the prosecution being out elephant-hunting, not very far away, and Wiki was pleading an alibi, and a twin brother in a bad wife palaver in this town. I really hope, for the sake of fan morals at large, that I did engage the three worst villains in Mfeta, and that Mfeta is the worst town in all fan land, inconvenient as this arrangement was to me personally. Anyhow, I felt sure my Pappenheimers would take a lot of beating for a good solid crime, among any tribe anywhere. Moreover, the Ajumba wanted meat, and the fans, they said, offered them human— I saw no human meat at Edgaja, but the Ajumba seemed to think the fans eat nothing else, which is a silly prejudice of theirs, because the fans do. I think this case the Ajumba thought a lot of smoked flesh offered was human. It may have been, it was in neat pieces, and again, as the captain of the late S.S. S. Sparrow would say, it mayn't. 
but the Ajumba have a horror of cannibalism, and I honestly believe never practice it, even for fetish affairs, which is a rare thing in a West African tribe where sacrificial and ceremonial cannibalism is nearly universal. Anyhow, the Ajumba loudly declared the fans were bad men too much, which was impolitic under existing circumstances, and inexcusable because it by no means arose from a courageous defiance of them, but the West African. Well, he's a devil, and an ostrich, and an orphan child in one. The chief was very anxious for me to stay and rest, but as his mother was doing wonderfully well, and the other women seemed quite to understand my directions regarding her, I did not feel inclined to risk it. The old lady's farewell of me was peculiar. She took my hand in her, too, turned it palm upwards, and spat on it. I do not know whether this is a constant form of greeting among the fan. I fancy not. Dr. Nassau, who explained it to me when I saw him again at Baraka, said the spitting was merely an accidental by-product of the performance, which consisted in blowing a blessing, and as I happened on this custom twice afterwards, I feel sure from observation he is right. The two chiefs saw us courteously out of the town as far as where the river crosses the outgoing path again, and the blue-hatted one gave me some charms to keep my foot in path, and the morning chief lent us his son to see us through the lines of fortification of the plantation. I gave them an equal dash, and in answer to their question as to whether I had found Igaja a thief-town, I said that to call Igaja a thief-town was rank perjury, for I had not lost a thing while in it, and we parted with mutual expression of esteem, and hopes for another meeting at an early date. The defences of the fine series of plantations of Igaja on this side were most intricate, to judge from the zigzag course our guide led us through them. He explained they had to be because of the character of the towns towards the Rembwe. After listening to this young man, I really began to doubt that the cities of the plain had really been destroyed, and wondered whether some future revision committee will not put transported for destroyed. This young man certainly hit off the character of Sodom and Gomorrah to the life, in describing the towns towards the Rembwe, though he had never heard of Sodom and Gomorrah named. He assured me I should see the difference between them and Egaja the Good, and I thanked him and gave him his dash when we parted, but told him as a friend I feared some alteration must take place, and some time elapsed before he saw a regular rush of pilgrim worshippers of virtue coming into even Egaja the Good, though it stood just as good a chance and better than most towns I had seen in Africa. We went on into the gloom of the great forest again, that forest that seemed to me without end, wherein in a lazy, hazy-minded sort of way I expected to wander through by day and drop in at night to a noisy savage town for the rest of my days. We climbed up one hill, skirted its summit, went through our athletic sports over sundry timber falls, and struck down into the ravine as usual. But at the bottom of that ravine, which was exceeding steep, ran a little river free from swamp. As I was wading it, I noticed it had a peculiarity that distinguished it from all the other rivers we had come through, and then and there I sat down on a boulder in its midst and hauled out my compass. Yes, by Allah! It's going northwest and bound as we are for Rembwe River. 
I went out the other side of that river with a lighter heart than I went in, and shouted the news to the boys, and they yelled and sang as we went on our way. All along this bit of country we had seen quantities of rubber vines, and between Egaja and Esun we came across quantities of rubber being collected. Evidently there was a big camp of rubber hunters out in the district, very busy. Wiki and Kiva did their best to teach me the trade. Along each side of the path we frequently saw a ring of stout bush-rope, raised from the earth on pegs about a foot to eighteen inches. On the ground in the middle stood a calabash, into which the ends of the pieces of rubber vine were placed, the other ends being supported by the bush-rope ring. Round the outside of some of these rings was a slow fire, which just singes the tops of the bits of rubber vine as they project over the collar or ring, and causes the milky juice to run out of the lower end into the calabash, giving out as it does so a strong ammoniacal smell. When the fire was alighted there would be a group of rubber collectors sitting around it, watching the cooking operations, removing those pieces that had run dry and placing others from a pile at their side in position. On either side of the path we continually passed pieces of rubber vine cut into lengths of some two feet or so, and on the top one or two leaves plaited together, or a piece of bush-rope tied into a knot which indicated whose property the pile was. The method of collection employed by the fan is exceedingly wasteful, because this fool of a vegetable, Landolphia florida, overriances, does not know how to send up suckers from its root, but insists on starting elaborately from seeds only. I do not, however, see any reasonable hope of getting them to adopt more economical methods. The attempt made by the English houses, when the rubber trade was opened up in 1883 on the Gold Coast, to get the more tractable natives there to collect by incisions only, has failed. For in the early days a man could get a load of rubber almost at his own door on the Gold Coast, and now he has to go fifteen days' journey inland for it. When a fan town has exhausted the rubber in its vicinity it migrates, bag and baggage, to a new part of the forest. The young unmarried men are the usual rubber hunters. Parties of them go out into the forest, wandering about in it and camping under shelters of boughs by night, for a month and more at a time, during the dry seasons, until they have got a sufficient quantity together. Then they return to their town, and it is manipulated by the women, and finally sold, either to the white trader in districts where he is within reach, or to the Mpongwe trader who travels round buying it, and the collected ivory and ebony, like a Norfolk higgler. In districts like these I was in, remote from the Mpongwe trader, the fans carry the rubber to the town nearest to them that is in contact with the black trader, and sell it to the inhabitants, who in their turn resell it to their next town, until it reaches him. This passing down of the rubber and ivory gives rise between the various towns to a series of commercial complications, which rank with woman palaver for the production of rows, it being the sweet habit of these fans to require a life for a life, and to regard one life as good as another. Also, rubber trade and wife palaver sweetly intertwine, for a man on the kill in Ray, a wife palaver knows his best chance of getting the life from the village he has a grudge against, lies in catching one of that village's men, when he may be out alone rubber hunting. 
So he does this thing, and then the men from the victim's village go and lay for a rubber hunter from the killer's village. And then, of course, the men from the killer's village go and lay for rubber hunters from victim number one's village, and thus the blood feud rolls down the vaulted chambers of the ages, so that you, dropping in on affairs, cannot see one end or the other of it. And frequently the people concerned have quite forgotten what the killing was started for. Not that this discourages them in the least. Really, if Dr. Nassau is right, and these fans are descendants of Adam and Eve, I expect the Cain and Abel killing palaver is still kept going among them. Wiki, being great on bush rope, gave me much information regarding rubber, showing me the various other vines besides a true rubber vine, whose juice, mingled with a true sap by the collector when in the forest, adds to the weight, a matter of importance because rubber is bought by weight. The other adulteration gets done by the ladies in the villages, when the collected sap is handed over to them to prepare for the markets. This preparation consists of boiling it in water slightly, and adding a little salt, which causes the gummy part to separate and go to the bottom of the pot, where it looks like a thick cream. The water is carefully poured off this deposit, which is then taken out and moulded, usually in the hands, but I have seen it run into moulds made of small calabashes, with a stick or piece of iron passing through, so that when the rubber is set this can be withdrawn. A hole being thus left, the balls can be threaded on to a stick, usually five on one stick for convenience of transport. It is during the moulding process that most of the adulteration gets in. Down by the side of many of the streams there is a white, chalky-looking clay which is brought up into the villages, powdered up and then hung up over the fire in a basket to attain a uniform smuttiness. It is then worked into the rubber when it is being made up into balls. Then a good chunk of cocoa, arum esculentium, cocoa is better than yam, I may remark, because it is heavier. Also smoked approximately the right color is often placed in the center of the rubber ball. In fact, anything is put there that is hopefully regarded as likely to deceive the white trader. So great is the adulteration that most of the traders have to cut each ball open. Even the Kenzimbo rubber, which is put up in clusters of bits shaped like little thimbles formed by rolling pinches of rubber between the thumb and finger, and which one would think difficult to put anything inside of, has to be cut, because the simple children of nature who collect it and bring it to that swindling white trader, struck upon the ingenious notion that little pieces of wood shaped like the thimbles and coated by a dip in rubber were excellent additions to a cluster. The pure rubber, when it is made, looks like putty, and has the same dusky white color, but, owing to the balls being kept in the huts, in baskets in the smoke, and in wicker-work cages in the muddy pools to soak up as much water as possible before going into the hands of the traders, they get almost inky in color. End of part two of chapter eight from Inkovi to Esun read by Kainde of Bahatrek dot com